Well, once again, good morning to all of you. Uh, we're going to continue our message series in, uh, in the Minor Prophets this morning with the, um, the story in the book of, of Hosea. And uh, it's hard to say that, that Hosea is a, a minor prophet because it's 14 chapters. And uh, I, if you're like me, I associate minor with kind of simple, kind of short. This is going to be a fun uh, little thing. But as we've already discovered in the book of Zechariah, um, another 14-chapter book, it's anything but short and it's anything but fun. Uh, I'm almost given to think that the, the longer the book is, the more violent and gross and shocking, and Hosea is going to be even more so. I, I, I really want to temper your expectations. Um, this, it's going to be a, a fun ride this morning, but uh, there's going to be, if, you're, if, you're not, if you don't come to church very often, um, you're probably going to walk out here and say, oh my gracious, I never heard that before in church. Uh, there is some, there is some lewd, I mean lewd, um, off-putting, take your breath away kinds of things, uh, in, in this book. It's not lost on, on we preachers though, that, uh, many, if not most, uh, people in our day, um, Christians in our day, uh, aren't familiar with uh, some scripture, and if there's some of the Bible, and if there's a part of the Bible that that most of our people have never read, have never touched on, it's the minor prophets. And so it, we start reading our Bible at the beginning of the year. A lot of people have that as their New Year's resolution, and about halfway through the book of Genesis, uh, life takes us in different directions, and, and so. If that's the case, you definitely didn't make it to, to Hosea. And if you have a Bible and you're thumbing through, you're probably having a, having a difficult time. Hosea is right after the book of Daniel, which means nothing, <laughs> nothing to you either. I just wanted to say that. Uh, go to the index. I was going to look up page numbers, but we have different, we have different page number 1295. Um, but I really do want, want to prepare you for the fact that this is a, a shocking book. Um, we had, I, I have to think, I didn't talk to, to the lady, um, about 10 minutes into the, the first sermon, um, a, a mother, there was the only kid in the audience, she, she, she was walking her out and I, Maybe it was my imagination, like, okay, all right, we're just going to cover your ears and get you on to, to kids' church. This is not the book that, that you're going to have pajama nighty-night time with your kids before they go to bed. Um, it's, it's, not, it's not even PG. This is, this is some heavy, heavy uh, language in this book that I feel compelled not uh, to sidestep. And here's why that if we don't deal with the violence and some of the language that um, the, the lewd uh, comments and language that Hosea or, or Zechariah or any of these books, if we don't deal with that here, if I don't explain it, then you're going to go home and read it <laughs> and you're going to be confused and either you'll do one of two things. Either you stop reading altogether. And I think people do that. They're like, I don't understand what's going on. God just seems pretty, 
angry and cruel, and we'll stop reading and make up our own picture, make up our own definition of who God is outside of the Bible, uh, and kind of live in this fan religious fantasy land that is America uh, in today's world. Or we'll secretly, we'll build up resentment or fear of God. And we're, we're talking about a God who's angry in the book of Hosea, which just seems like, doesn't, doesn't that make sense that if God is angry, if God is a wrathful, I just, I'm, I'm looking across the, the room to see um, the, the old Baptists that just got excited. <laughs> Woo, I came to church, we're going to talk about wrath. That if God is wrathful, doesn't it make sense that I would, when, that I'd come to church and I'd just be afraid or that I would feel guilty? Doesn't God want me to be afraid of him? Doesn't he want me? Doesn't he want to stir guilt in me so I'd do better, be better, work harder? Ah, that's why we need to teach the book of Hosea. That's why we need to teach the hard things because we make up, we either avoid it altogether, which is America, uh, or, and the, the other side of America, you want, to, you want to talk skeptics, skeptics take the hard things of the Bible and make it the whole thing. So, oh, there's a lot of violence in the Old Testament. And if we don't explain it, then they get the last word. And we misunderstand the truth of who God is. God is not all of anything. This is one side of the, we have both sides. There's one side of the story of God, but it, it, it is the wrath. God is angry at times in the Old Testament. And in this book, he is livid. The wrath of God is on full display. I'll say this, and we'll say this, we'll say this multiple times through our study today. Unless, unless we understand, until we understand the wrath of God, the grace of God, that we love to talk about, we should. Unless or until we understand the wrath of God, why is he so angry? The grace of God will, will be muted. But when we understand the wrath of God, the full measure of His grace will be poured out on us. The two go together. So this book, 14 chapters, is obviously we're not going to be able in uh, the next uh, hour and a half that we'll be talking now. In the next little while, we're not going to be able to break down this book. This will be a great study over multiple weeks, but we're doing it in one. And because of that, um, we're going to do I, we're going to do what Hosea does. In chapter uh, chapters one to three, tells the story of the life and, and tragic the tragic life and marriage of Hosea uh, to to a lady that well, um, we'll get there in a minute. Um, he tells a story in 1 to 3, and in 4 to 14, uh, God gives accusations and predictions, threats, and war on his people, chapter by chapter in, in the most descriptive and violent ways. God then brings about the punishment 
of his people, 4 to 14. We'll, I'm gonna, we're going to skip through and give a survey of those things. But the reason why God gives the story of Hosea in 1 to 3 is because in the tragic life and marriage of, and to, of Hosea to this lady, he summarizes or gives the cliff note version of the rest of the book because I think God knows that a few chapters in, we're like, okay, I don't think I can take any more of this. And it's not that the life, the tragic life and marriage of Hosea in the first three chapters is any less shocking but it happens so quick that we don't have time to close it. So God kind of sneaks it in there, but he summarizes in the story the rest of the book. He does it so extremely well that we get, the, here's the promise, we get the full picture, both sides, both the wrath of God and the love of God encapsulated in this story. So by way of survey, here's what I'd like to do. If you've got a Bible with you um, and you've looked at the index and found your way over to the book of Hosea, great. If you, if you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, if you don't have a Bible in your home, we'd like to put one in your hand and you just walk out with it. We'd, we'd love for you to have, have a Bible. Um, we'll have scriptures on the screen, but there's going to be some things around the scriptures that you might want to just read and check me out because you're going to say, God said that? So just so you know that I'm not, that I'm not lying. Um, we'll start in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. I'm going to read a few things just to survey uh, the, the, the longest part of the book. He says, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy, an accusation, with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. You've forgotten me, he says. There is swearing. You have to say that kind of with a sneer. There is swearing, and I know some of you are like, okie dokie, but it gets worse. There is swearing, there is lying, and now we get to the good stuff. There is murder and stealing and adultery in the land. They have no boundaries. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. You're like, is that really happening, and why would that happen? Well, Israel has uh, made friends with the nations around uh, Israel, uh, that border, the nations that border Israel. And in those nations, their religious practices required a blood sacrifice, often of a child. And with those friendships came influence. And with those influence to make everybody feel, we don't want to make anybody uncomfortable. Susie. <laughs> they participated in the most wretched things. And wasn't just cussing when they stubbed their toe. It, it, got, it got bad. And God makes that accusation. He begins to spell out why he's so angry. He says in chapter 5, verse 8 to 11, just pop over to the next chapter, he moves from accusations to threats and says, blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah, sound the alarm at Beth-Avon, 
We follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel. I make known what is sure. God says, I promise that this is what's going to happen. Imagine, this is shocking, but imagine you're in, a, you're in Israel and you're in your small group Bible study. It says, sound the trumpet. You hear it. And then the, the beating of the drum of war off in the distance. I don't want to be in this Bible study anymore. If it's shocking to us, the wrath of God, imagine them with the impending punishment of God standing at their gates. I will make known what is sure. The prince of Judah, princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark upon them, I will pour out my wrath like water. I'm gonna, it's going to be a different kind of baptism. I'll pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, he says, crushed in judgment because he has determined to go after filth. He says, you want to go that way? Listen to the trumpet of they knew these, these were familiar uh, images, familiar sounds to them. They knew what war sounded like, and God says, I'm going to bring you to total desolation. And then the small group leader says, do we have any prayer requests? <laughs> any, anyone? Anyone? <laughs> Your aunt's neighbor's cat? Okay, we're going to pray for, pray for Betsy. God makes a promise. There is, in chapter 6 and 7, we're not going to pop this on the screen, but I'll just review it. In chapter 6 and 7, it almost looks like they repent. But if you read the language and then find God's response, he, he, especially in chapter 6, they say, oh, so that God won't do this thing, maybe if we just... If we just say that we're sorry, this is kind of like, this is kind of like you have a bad month at work and you're like, oh man, God must be angry. I guess I got to go back to church. If I can just get God off my back. Maybe if we just say that we're sorry in two days time, the language is so, ah, it's so much like us. In, in, in two days time, he'll take us back in the army's will retreat. If you picture this, they, they treat God like they have him on a little leash. If I just yank him, if I just say the right things, if I, oh, I need to catch up on my tithe. They treat God like he's so small. They objectify him. But God catches on by the end of chapter 7 and says, you're not sincere. You don't mean it. And then in chapter 10, starts uh, rolling out their punishment in full measure. The full measure of the wrath of God is poured out on His people. He says, you have plowed iniquity in chapter 10, verse 13 through 15. You have plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies. You have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of you think you're strong enough. They, they actually thought. And I'm like, okay, we'll try a little church over here. 
give a little bit at the altar, say the right words. And then they thought, okay, that didn't, that's not pulling God back. Let's just build up our nations. Maybe we'll get some more horses. We, get some, we can do it on our own. Therefore, whew, the tumult of war shall arise among your people. And all of your fortresses shall be destroyed. As Shalman destroyed Beth Arden on the day of battle, mothers, look, this is where it's shocking. Mothers were dashed to pieces with their children. Can I hear? We gasp. <gasps> Thank you. You're not going to be... A, a, you follow instructions. Mothers were dashed to pieces with their children. There, thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. Like I said, this is a shocking, graphic difficult book that I believe God understood that if we feel that way, they would have felt that way. Therefore, he gives us the first three chapters and encapsulates in the, the tragic life and marriage of his prophet Hosea, encapsulates, depicts in real form in ways that we can relate to, depicts his relationship with his people, the nations, and with his people, you and me. And he does it. So that we will understand the wrath of God. So that, friends and family, so that we can receive, comprehend the incomprehensible, the grace of God. So the tra tragic life and story of Hosea, and this is where if we have children, you want to put your hands over their ears. We're going to read the first two verses, and then I'm going to summarize a lot. In these first two verses, are you reading? I don't know what version of the Bible you have. There's some that, that, uh, that make this a little less shocking. Mine does not. He says this, the word of the Lord came that came to Hosea, the son of Barry, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go, take yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great, I'm not going to make you say it, <laughs> let's say it all together, no, 
commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. He repeats it again. You can see in the smaller group Bible study or Hosea stands up in front of the people and says, hey, I've got a word from God. And again, my wife said not to say it more than three times. So we're gonna, we'll, we'll use different vernacular through the rest of our study. But he wants us to be shocked. He needs us to be shocked, to feel the measure. He doesn't want to lessen it because in lessening it, we miss lessening the, the reality of their situation. We would miss the reason for the wrath of God and the availability of the grace of God. But if you're reading this, and like me, I'm looking thinking, would God really do, would God really do that to someone? Now, in all fairness, when you read the Bible, there's lots of bad things and weird things happen to people through the Bible. Let's admit it. There's some weird stuff in the Bible. Most of the time, though, when bad stuff happens and weird things come about, it's because of something that that person or those people did. They deserved it. They brought it on themselves. We don't have any evidence that Jose was anything but a faithful servant and prophet of God. And yet, God gives him the command. He says, you're going to go out and you're going to marry this either she was already or would become a prostitute, a lady of the night, a working girl. And I hear the murmurs, what? I'm try we're trying to move away from the actual biblical language. Would God, and the question that really arises in the air, would God do that? Would God do that to me? Would God call me to do something weird? I, I, I had to face this sitting around with a bunch of preachers. Like, this is not what, what God's, God does with ordinary people, but he does with his prophets. If you read the prophets, God does ask, calls his prophets to do some weird, dangerous, and crazy stuff. But in this story, you and I are not Hosea. So you should feel a sense of relief. You're not Hosea. Let it settle in. If, you're not, if I'm not Hosea, then I'm... His wife's Gomer, and I, you'll read that. He goes and takes his wife. He actually does it. And I think, I think her name is Gomer to be kind of a relief valve in the horridness of the story, because you can't say, hey, I married a lady named Gomer. <laughs> Her dad had to have been just a, a punk of a dude to name his dad. I don't think Gomer was any less funny then than it, than it is now, but he goes and marries this lady Gomer. If we're, who becomes a prostitute, if we're not Hosea, then I'm Gomer. And as the story unfolds, God predicts it. He says, marry this lady who was or would commit the most, the grossest, the most horrible 
the most heart-wrenching, life-altering, painful betrayal. As a picture of God's relationship with his people, God is Hosea and we, his people, are the prostitute. So that, listen, all of a sudden, I mean, you hear hear people, God God is a tyrant. Oh, he's storming about. God just is angry. And, and, we don't know what to say. You, you have coworkers that's like, I, I, I can't do that church thing because God's, God's kind of a nutcase. He's just an abusive dude. Hold on a minute. But when you look at Hosea, who in the next verses... It probably started out as, okay, I'll be obedient. Then he sees this gal who has a reputation. And what does he think? I can change her. Ah, she's gorgeous. And and when she gets with me, she's not going to do that stuff anymore. I know she won't, no matter what God said. And he feels it, the flutter in his heart. They sit down, he lights the candle. Oh, and he just can't stand it. I want her. And she says she wants me. Ah, and they date a little while and prance down the street, pinky and pinky. And then he asks, he pops the question, will you be my beloved? He falls for her. She means it. She wants to change. And they stand on the altar and her hands in his hand and slips the ring on. And, ah, and then she takes the cake and smears it on his face and the pictures and the cheers and it's so beautiful. And I don't know, it doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us how he found out. Uh, was it... Were the rumors whispers? Or when he walks down the street with his beautiful young bride, does he hear chuckles? (laughs) What an idiot. What a fool. Doesn't he know what she's doing? And then imagine he follows her, doesn't want to be seen. And it would be bad enough if he sees her go into a market and, oh, it was a kiss on the cheek, but then on the lips of another man. Oh, it'd be bad enough if looking in a restaurant, somebody else is lighting the candle. That would be bad enough if he looks in her journal and there's a note about Oh, this other guy. But it's not another guy. He doesn't tell us how. He just says what. It's a brothel or an entourage. 
and money exchanged. Look into the face of Hosea. Look at his face when he finds out. It does continue in verse 3 uh, that they marry and, and they start to bear children. We're not clear uh, how many of the kids are from other lovers. It doesn't tell us. We know it, it, at least one. But the story continues and the first child who she conceives and bears, it never says that conceived with him. There's never a, there's that word, that phrase never, that's why we don't know whether, whether just one or all of the kids are born from, the prediction he says, you're going to bear children of whoredom. <sighs> but Jezreel, the first, and the only one that actually is, is the name, and then the, and then the definition of the name is given, the rest just the definition. Jezreel, he says, you will, name the, you will name this one Jezreel, for in a little while I'm going to punish. That's the definition, and that's too long, so call him Jezreel. But the definition is in a little while. This is, uh, this is like with parents, this is God saying, I'm going to count to three, and then I'm going to whoop you. That's, that's Jezreel's name. Like, in a little while I'm going to punish you. The second child is his, her daughter that you get the sense probably this one was born out of her profession because the daughter's name, if you can imagine, we love the name Grace, right? Hers is the opposite. <laughs> no mercy. Oh, God is promising in this. It's the breakdown of the rest of the book. God is promising no mercy. Imagine that. Sweet little no mercy playing in the backyard. <laughs> no mercy, get over here. That's number two. Number three, we know, is definitely not Hosea's son. Oh, I want you to feel this. Baby's born, he has suspicions. Ah, he's seen her go out. He can't stop loving her. Birth certificate, and God says, Not my people. Hosea, this one's not yours. Ooh. Imagine tagging those holiday photos. <laughs> I mean, it's bad enough that Hosea's his wife, the chuckles, that he lives with the shame of his situation, but God makes him name his kids to make it even worse. Why would he do that? Why would he ruin this poor guy's life? 
I think three reasons. This whole story, there's three reasons. The first is to reframe our understanding of our relationship with God. To reframe our relationship with God, who God is. Because how we feel about Hosea is how we should feel about God. There's not a man in this room that would expect Hosea to be nonchalant about his situation. I want you to feel it. It's there. You, you can't help but feel it. But if Hosea were to say, ah, who cares? We would, men, ladies, this could be either, he, the prophet's just a man in, in this case, and, and then Gomer's, Gomer. But if Hosea was passive about it, every man in this room would say, he didn't love her then. Because the measure of Hosea's anger corresponds to the depth. This is, you're going to have an aha moment right now. To the depth of his love. So therefore, if we pacify the anger of God, we diminish his love as well. If we make God out to be a kind of a pansy, go along to get along, God, he's just about grace. And we think that that's great. God is just about love and grace and peace and happiness. Then he can't be the husband. He's something else. It's difficult. The Bible very commonly uses human relationships to, to depict um, our relationship with God. We'll do this with kings and, and fathers especially. So God is our king. He's a sovereign king, and he's, a, he's the loving father. The problem with king, though, is when the king is mad, the people are like, oh, good grief, did I not pay my tithe? And with fathers, we don't really know what to do with, an, with the angry father because he's kind of stuck with those little rascals, right? And really, when we just have the enigma that, that we say is God, when God is angry, we're like, okay, what did I do? Did I not cut the bull's head and just neck in just the right way? What commandment did I break? We don't know what to do with it, but all of a sudden we look at the face of Hosea as the depiction of God. We say, no wonder he's angry. And if he wasn't angry, we'd be surprised. You see how our fantasy flips over and it doesn't make sense how the reputation of God in society diminishes the power of God's grace because he has every right to be angry because the relationship that he wanted that he expected that he offered 
to you and to me was not merely that of a king with loyal subjects or a god to delve out expectations and commands, do's and don'ts, but of intimacy, of closeness, that you would know him and he would know you, that, that he would hold you in his arms, that he would love and honor, provide, and protect you. It was his promise to you. This is bride. But you didn't trust that. I didn't trust it. They didn't trust it. God made his promises, and, and what do I do? I look to sin to do what God promised to do. There's your definition of sin. Looking to anything or anyone else to do what God promised to do, to give what God promised to give. And thus the affair begins between me and sin. So his anger is not about not getting enough stuff from me, from his people. It's about not getting them, not getting their heart, not getting their all. Reframes our understanding of the relationship with God, but it also reframes, secondly, our relationship with sin. So as shocking as Gomer's extramarital activities are, they disable us from minimizing the shock of the truth of sin. Like the depiction, there's no way to avoid it. I try to look away. But our tendency is to minimize what sin is, both in our society. It's like, ah, you know, it's just, we, we use that language. It's just, I'm not defined by my sin. It's no big deal. But in Gomer, aside from the weird name, all of a sudden, I can't avoid the truth of what sin is and the shame that it brings on me, but more specifically. In all my attempts to minimize, I can't escape the fact that sin brings shame on the name of God. It reframes this relationship that we have with sin because all of a sudden with, with Gomer and her lovers, I'm forced to admit the fact that behind the action of sin is 
allure into a relationship. And we don't see it that way. I'm just doing this. I'm just doing that. But all of a sudden, it's not an activity as much as it is a contract or a covenant that begins between me and the sinister, scheming liar who is the devil. And this is what I really want you to see. When, when we, as much as we try to minimize it, when we participate in sin, we're engaging in a relationship with the evil one. Lurking behind the corner, he's kind of the pimp in this picture. Bet you didn't think we were going to hear that. But I want to shock it. Like, you think this is no big deal. Oh, there's greater plans going on here. Like it's, it, it, to, to reframe how we see sin so that it will take our breath away and we'll turn back to God. So it's, sin is, every sin is a relationship. The devil, secondly, has an, an agenda. Like he wants to draw us in. That's what James chapter 1 verse 16, I think, is the verse says. When we're tempted, we're lured away and enticed. And then when sin has conceived, I know that James was reading Hosea when he, the Holy Spirit was giving him this debt. When sin is conceived, what does sin do? It has little babies. And you know what those are? Oh, as cute as they are. They're wonderful. <laughs> Three o'clock in the morning, I gotta go and feed this darn thing. That's the picture of sin. Sorry. <laughs> sin requires more and more. Oh, it's a simple thing. It's no big deal. It requires more and more of your attention. And then you name the thing, and, <laughs> and it's no mercy. It's the demonstration. That's the picture. This thing that we play with, now we have to face a reality. This is a big deal. And that sin has... A final destination. It wants to destroy you. That thing that you're playing with, lady, will not stop until your marriage is destroyed. Buddy, you're dabbling. You think, you think that you've got the upper hand Satan has a roadmap, and he will not stop until he takes everything you hold dear from you and leaves you. Chapter 3, Hosea chapter 3. She apparently had been gone for some time and had taken up full-time prostitution to the point that she was apparently completely used up. Mind, body, spirit. I don't, does this say how Hosea found out? When he was reading the paper, it's like, oh, there's a slave auction today. Oh, they've got them listed out. Not a lot of people named Gomer, so it stands out. 
And he doesn't react the way we would expect him to react. Ha! Gets what's coming to her. God's been angry the whole time in this book, right? It's inconceivable that at Gomer's worst moment that God, that Hosea is not furious, but that's not the response. He goes to the he goes to the auction. Not to sneer, not to giggle, not to point. You can imagine he hears, bam, 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 let the auction begin. She's a little worn, she's a little haggard. Not usable in her former profession, but she can sure scrub a floor. And through the crowd, he sees the dilapidated, the worn, the shameful face of his once beautiful bride. And the bidding begins to silence unwanted. Once desired, now unwanted. The price lowers. Do I hear? To silence. And finally, at half the price of a slave, Hosea's voice sounds out. I will pay the price. If that doesn't take you to the cross, I will pay the price. And he did. But still, the expectation that we have is, oh, he's going he's gonna to buy her. Okay. <laughs> she can sleep in the barn. And quickly, I love the condensed nature of this story because quickly he dispels it. He takes her off of the block, covers her. says, you'll come home with me and you will be my beloved forever. Chapter 2 has this language again and again. You will be my beloved forever. He paid a dowry for her. He, he paid off her debt. Yeah, we don't know it, it, why she was at the auction, but the idea probably is that she, she made some investment that her body could no longer pay for and ended up in this place. Pays for her, pays it off, draws her near. Incomprehensible. There's, by the way, a, a weird correlation between, uh, between this story and a parable in the New Testament. Did anybody catch this? That, like, she's, she's the, the best she thinks she can do is sell herself into slavery or be sold into slavery. She has no hope. Hosea's not going to take her back, right? And the prodigal son... eating pig food and cleaning up pig dung, says, I'll go home, but the best my daddy's going to do is let me be a slave in his house. This is the lie that our fantasy paints about the wrath of God, that God is so, if God is so angry, he can't love me. 
that the world wants you to believe, that our sin and our shame, this is what Satan, boy, he puts the shackles around our wrists and it, it perpetuates the cycle of slavery where we say, I've sinned so bad and God must be angry. He is. He is. I've sinned so bad. He won't have me. This picture of Hosea paying the price reframes our relationship with grace. There we go. Because once we grasp the intensity, the full measure of God's anger, once we grasp that and once we say, I get it, man, dude, look at what she did. Once we understand the truth about sin, that will change our understanding and our relationship with grace because it will then, grace will then be utterly incomprehensible. Because the only human thing in this story, the only uh, uh, in the earlier, we get the anger. But in human terms, I can't imagine being able to do what Hosea does. And I can't imagine then how God was able to take me back. This is the turn of events in the miraculous thing about God's grace that we miss if we avoid or minimize the wrath of God. And then we look at the cross and it further confuses us. Because the picture, the truth about God, is sure he's angry, as he should be. But that God's desire, his dream for you and me, from the very beginning, was to hold us, caress us, whisper sweet nothings over us, to care for us, to protect us, to provide for us. And when sin dashes that dream, sure, God's angry. But friends and family, that dream is not dead. Just as the father in the prodigal son sees his son a long way off and the text says leaps off of his porch runs to his son wraps him with his garment lavishes over him his love Hosea and God say to Gomer to me 
in my worst moment, in the disgustingness of my sin, says, I want you back. I want to restore the dream. I want to hold you as my own. And he says, you will be my beloved forevermore. As the dew, chapter 14 says, as the dew sprinkles on the petals of the lily, incomprehensibly, God says, I want you. So in conclusion, should God ever be angry? Somebody's going to ask you. They're going to quiz you when you get back to the office. Should God ever be angry? I hope so. Because if God doesn't care about the sin of this world, the state of our nation, and my sin, if God doesn't care, He doesn't care. Let that ring with you. If God doesn't care, if He shrugs, eh, let them do what they want to do. Come on then he never loved me in the first place. But if he cares, if he cares enough to be livid about sin, and especially about what sin does to the dream that he has for you and for me and for Monroe and for Georgia and for the United States of America and for Ukraine and for cares enough to be angry. Then he cares enough to do something about it. The story does not end with his anger. And he will not quit until he pays the price to restore the dream and hold my silly face in his hands to convince me, to convince you, I love you. Ah, but you were angry. Duh. <laughs> I want you, God says, forevermore. Forevermore. bet you didn't think that you were going to fall in love with the wrath of God today. <laughs> if you don't know that God, if, if you've come this long in your walk on this earth uh, without giving a second thought to who created you and what he wants from you, oh, he wants so much more than anybody's ever told you. And he won't stop until he's in that kind of a relationship with you. If you're sitting here today and you've been playing with sin, I hope. Yeah, a little flirtation in the office, a little miscalculation. I hope you're scared to death. Not so much of God, but of where this whole thing's going. Satan won't quit until he has everything. And I hope 
If you've spent a second, a moment, a day, a year out of the loving embrace of your God that today you'd walk up when we take communion and that you'd, you'd with the bread and with the cup that you would see the sparkle in the eye of God. Say, ah, I want to be yours again. That you'd hear his footsteps, that you'd hear him call out your name in the crowd away from your shame, that you'd be restored. And then if you know all that, if you're already, if you're sitting here today and you're like, duh, God's grace is just that good, go tell somebody. Because outside of these walls, in our culture today, people believe the lie. Roll their eyes at a God who gave his life for us. If you would stand and let's give him praise. Honor you, O God. Your love is incomprehensible. And we say now, as we, as we see your anger, we say, God, you have every right to hate sin and what it does to your dream for us. And we ask, oh God, that you would call us into your loving embrace, that we, your people, would hear your voice and your sweet caress would wipe away our tears. Oh God, the goodness of God, convince our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name.